Good, good morning, everybody. After the... Hi, Matt. Hi, Jay. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Heard, heard we had a mad scramble this morning. Tell Jan and Elise to sit down so we can get started. All right. Okay. Good morning. We'll... What's that? Talk fast, yeah. I will have to talk at one and three quarters speed. No, one and a half speed, I think, to get through everything. So we should be just fine. Yeah. So, All right. Let's open up a word of prayer, and then uh, we can get into our study in Daniel. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we just give you praise for another opportunity that we have to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for um, this gathering together. We thank you, Lord, for the, um, this, this body of believers. Just pray, Lord, that we would be able to fellowship with one another, that we'd be able to encourage and edify each other here today. Just pray, Lord, for um, uh, this day. that uh, We thank you, Lord, for the blessing that we have of uh, celebrating uh, the birth of this country that you've blessed us with, Lord. And we just pray that um, you would help us to have a, a fun and safe holiday today. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to study the book of Daniel, and just pray, Lord, that you would give us um, insight into uh, your truth today, Lord, and just pray that, that uh, you would be glorified by all that we do. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 5, in our study together today, we're at the point where we're seeing the final days of the kingdom of Babylon. And um, we started in our study last time, uh, we looked at quite a bit of the history that has led us up to this point. And one of the first things that we noted when we get to Daniel chapter 5 is that Nebuchadnezzar, who has been so instrumental with the first part of the book, uh, first part of the book of Daniel, um, is no longer king. Um, The events of chapter 5 take place some 23 years after the events of chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar is long since dead by this point in time. So at this time, the kingdom of Babylon is being ruled by a man by the name of Nabonidus, um, and he was ruling the kingdom from a distance, from an oasis town called Tama, and we talked about a lot of this in our last study. But since Nabonidus was gone from Babylon, he was not ruling from Babylon, he had appointed his son as a co-regent of the kingdom, and his son was named Belshazzar. Belshazzar was most likely a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. The general consensus was that Nabonidus married into the royal family in some way, and Belshazzar was probably his adopted son. Therefore, Belshazzar would have been acquainted with Nebuchadnezzar. He would have known a lot of things, aware of the things that had gone on in his life, and that will be important um, as we get into the rest of this passage here. It's Belshazzar that we're primarily dealing with in chapter 5. Another thing that we talked about in our last study that will be important for us to know in our study together today is that at this time, the city of Babylon is under siege by the Medo-Persian Empire. They have camped around the great city for up to four months already at this point in time, looking for a way in. But the city of Babylon was a heavily fortified city. It had been built up into what they thought, that's, that's foreshadowing, what they thought was an impenetrable fortress. 
And so feeling secure, the citizens inside were not afraid of the Medo-Persian Empire that was camped around it, and they were, at this point in time, not really even giving them a second thought because they'd been out there for so long already. And this leads us into the events of chapter 5. And we saw at the beginning of the chapter that Belshazzar was having a party. And this party that he's having is, is a doozy of a party. It's a drunken party. It's an immoral party. It's a party that he's throwing for a thousand of his nobles. And it's a scene, basically, of total debauchery. He's got his wives there. He's got his concubines that have been called in. The wine is flowing freely. And during these festivities, Belshazzar does one of the most drunken, idiotic things that he could possibly do. And the scene, we see this scene starting in verse 2, where it said, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, and when it says tasted the wine, that means that he was influenced by the wine. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So during the goings-on of this drunken party that Belshazzar is throwing, he decides that he's going to call in uh, or call for the vessels that belong to God, the vessels that were made to honor God. God that had been taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. And they take these vessels and they use them to mock God. They use them to worship their own gods of gold and silver, wood and stone, bronze and iron, their own worthless material gods instead of God, instead of the true God of heaven. And why would they do this? Well, Belshazzar was drunk, right? He was out of his mind drunk, and he makes a rash and foolish decision here. He makes a decision to challenge God. He makes a decision to mock God while taking glory for himself and trying to give it to his false gods. Now, Belshazzar should have known better. He would have read the decree from Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in chapter 4. He had known about the humility that he had learned from Nebuchadnezzar's seven-year ordeal. He knew all about that. We'll see as we go through our section today that he knew this. And he had decided to reject the truth of God. Namely, that God had given him his kingdom. That God had bestowed on him the kingdom of Babylon. Instead, his thoughts turned to mocking God. So if we continue on in Daniel chapter 5, what happens next is that a hand appears and writes a message on the wall which scares the life out of the king. His knees knock together, his hips go slack, his face goes pale as he's seeing this hand, and we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was some sort of disembodied hand that was writing on the wall. And so he's a quivering mess, and, and because he knows what the writing of this hand signifies... We are all very familiar with the expression, the writings on the wall. Well, Belshazzar has the distinction of being the first one to realize what this expression means. Judgment is coming. Your fate has been determined. 
And he doesn't understand what the writing means yet. So in verses 7 and 8, he calls in the wise men, and they are once again worthless, right? This was apparently the thing to do in, for the king of, of Babylon, whoever the king was. Well, when something happens you don't understand, you call in your wise men. But once again, they're worthless. They can't tell him what the writing means. They don't understand the meaning of these words that have been written. And that sets the stage for where we are this morning. The king has gone even paler, and his nobles are perplexed. No one knows what to do next. What does this mean? Well, look with me at verse 10. Start in verse 10 this morning. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. So now here in verse 10, we have another person entering the scene, the queen, it says. The general idea, the general consensus is that this is not Belshazzar's wife or one of his wives, but most likely this is his mother, either the daughter or the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, possibly the wife of Nabonidus. Um, and it would not be unusual due to the circumstances of Nabonidus' marriage to her, most likely it was a, a political or a convenient marriage. Um, because remember, Nabonidus married into the family of Nebuchadnezzar. That's how he became uh, king of Babylon. So even with Nabonidus ruling from afar, off in the city of Tama where he was, it wouldn't be unusual for the queen to remain in the city of Babylon. And we know that this would not be the wife of Belshazzar because of the way that she speaks to him. She's very direct. She commands an audience with him immediately. And sorry, ladies, but the wife of the king would not have this type of authority for entering the king's presence um, that we're going to see that she has here. She's going to enter in, and she's going to immediately be heard. Besides, we know from previous verses that Belshazzar's wives were already in attendance at this, this feast. They did not have to enter in. They were already there. So in she comes. This woman, as the widow or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, either one, she would have been familiar with the events of Nebuchadnezzar's rule and with those which he surrounded himself. And therefore, what she's going to tell him makes perfect sense. Evidently, the word of what had happened started to spread because if she wasn't there, she had heard that something was going on at the feast. Perhaps she was close by and heard the commotion, or maybe when the wise men were called, she'd gotten a sense that something wasn't going quite right in the banquet hall. In any event, she comes in before him and shows him the respect that he's due as king. O king, live forever. And we've seen that phrase many times. Everybody that addresses Nebuchadnezzar, that had addressed Nebuchadnezzar, says that phrase, but she's got some words of comfort for him, or that should at least reassure him. She says, do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. And then in verse 11, she goes on to explain why. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And you notice the words that she uses to talk about this man, and we know this man's Daniel, but sorry if I spoiled the surprise. But she, she says that a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And back in chapter 4, verse 8, 
Nebuchadnezzar there said, But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar viewed Daniel. This is how Nebuchadnezzar spoke of Daniel, recognizing that there was something different about him. The power that resided in Daniel was not the same thing that the other wise men could produce, which really was nothing, right? We've seen nothing that these other wise men have been able to do. But he saw the power, it says, of the holy gods, which was the only way at that point in time that he understood Daniel's God. And now this same view has rubbed off on others. This woman, whatever her direct relationship to Nebuchadnezzar was, has been influenced by Nebuchadnezzar, by the head of, the head of gold. I think this is similar to what we talked about in our last study with Evil Merodach, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that came after Nebuchadnezzar, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar died. Um, but when, Nebuch- when Evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released the king of Judah from prison when he succeeded, after he succeeded Nebuchadnezzar as king. He showed the king of Israel kindness. He gave him a prominent place among the kings. But now we see another family, another family member remember this man who served Nebuchadnezzar many years ago. And this is another reason why it's evident that she has been around Nebuchadnezzar in some capacity as wife or daughter. Nebuchadnezzar had given Daniel a position as head of the wise men because he had been able to demonstrate more power and ability. And he goes on, and she goes on then in verse 12, and says, This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So you can tell that she's impressed with Daniel. She knows of Daniel. Um, she knows not only that Nebuchadnezzar liked him, um, but that these things were true of him. She's basically lavishing praise on Daniel here. He was the main guy that Nebuchadnezzar called on, that Nebuchadnezzar relied on. And we know of only a few times recorded in, in Scripture, but I doubt that Daniel only proved himself valuable two or three times. We have to assume that there were probably other things that he did that we were not, that we're not aware of. But Daniel faithfully served the king of Babylon for over 40 years, and now he's going to get another crack at, at, uh, at this. So she's telling him to go get Daniel, this guy that solved problems for the king, your father or grandfather, that you should go and get him. And she has the same confidence that Nebuchadnezzar had that he can interpret this, this message that's been written. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, because I was wondering, what had Daniel been doing for the last 23 years? I mean, it, it doesn't say. We're not told what happened to Daniel. Where has Daniel been for 23 years? He had apparently been forgotten during these changes in power. Belshazzar didn't even remember him, didn't even think to call for Daniel. It's safe to say that he was no longer in the second in command in the kingdom or even chief of the wise men. But as we read through, I think it's evident that Daniel hasn't changed much. He's no longer a 15-year-old kid. Remember when we started talking about Daniel back in chapter 1, he was probably 15 to 18 years old. 
But now he's about an 85-year-old kid, if you want to call him a kid. And in all that time, with regards to his faith, we're going to see that nothing has changed. And I find that to be remarkable. Nothing has changed for Daniel after 70 years. I pray that after 70 years, I can say that nothing has changed with regard to faith. So the king, being eager to try anything to figure this out, follows her advice. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king, it says. So Daniel's brought in. They have to, they have to go get him, right? Daniel's not at the party. Daniel has to be brought in. And I think it's also remarkable to see something else about Daniel. He was not associated with the other wise men. Once again, we see that. When they bring in the wise men, he's not hanging out with the wise men. He didn't tag along with them. He wasn't known to be among them. When word went out to call for the wise men, no one associated Daniel with that group. And I think just like we've seen all along, Daniel kept himself from the wrong company. Every time that we see Daniel, he's keeping or has kept himself apart from these pagan men. Even when he was head of the wise men, he would come in at different times than they would. And so there's no mistaking the fact that Daniel was not associated with these guys. And by the queen's praise of him, it's obvious that that distinction was apparent to others as well. Daniel stood apart. All of his life he stood apart. And now as he's brought in before a king that he doesn't have a solid relationship with, in fact, Belshazzar doesn't even remember him, we'll see that he will continue to stand apart. So look at the the rest of verse 13. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? He knows something about him, obviously. Whether he's starting to remember this, whether, whether what um, the queen has said is starting to jog his memory, or maybe the queen shared some more details that aren't all recorded here. We don't really know. But he continues with the same offer that he'd made to the other wise men. So he kind of remembers more about Daniel, but he continues on with the same offer. Verse 14, Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and might make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. So he's giving Daniel his shot here. He's, it's almost like he's pumping him up for this challenge. I've heard great things about you. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. Illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom. I called in these other guys. These are my main guys. I called them in. They couldn't cut it. They failed. Now it's your turn to try. Now I'm going to give you a shot at it. And so it's almost like he's kind of priming him and trying to get his competitive juices flowing. So in verse 16, he lays it out. He says, But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom." What we have here, we have, we have Daniel's big rocky moment, right? It's almost, like, it's almost like Daniel has fallen into obscurity and now he's got this second chance is almost what it looks like. 
He's been relegated to obscurity for the last couple of decades. The king didn't even know him. Maybe had never even really heard of him. And now he's giving this, given this opportunity to shine in front of the king and all the nobles, right? I mean, it's like everybody who's important is there. They're all falling down drunk, but they're there. But he's been offered the reward of power, of authority once again. And Daniel would be back as really the, the second in command. Second in command under Belshazzar, third in command, third ruler under Nabonidus, who was never present in Babylon. So that's a mighty gift. But you know what? Daniel's not really interested in all that. He wasn't ever interested really in it before, but he accepted the rewards even though he wasn't really looking for them. But here he's not really interested. Once again, he's standing out in the crowd. He says in verse 17, or it says in verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Keep your stuff. Give it to someone else. I don't believe that this is Daniel's attempt at being rude here. This isn't him saying, keep your junk. I don't want anything from you. I think this is really more of a humble attitude than anything, more, more a humble attitude than a defiant one. He was not expecting a human reward for doing the Lord's work here. Right? He's been, he knows that he's been brought in to interpret what the Lord is trying to tell Belshazzar. And that's really what he's doing. He's being an instrument of God, and he's expecting no reward for it. There's also a possibility that, or another element to it, is that he might already know what this is saying. Um, uh, he didn't want to be accused of... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, he already knows what's going to happen, that the king's time is coming to an end. We'll see that. Again, I'm sorry if I spoiled it, but I'm sure everybody knows kind of what's coming. Um, but the king's time is coming to an end, um, and there wasn't really going to be any room for a third ruler of the kingdom at this point anyway, because um, basically Belshazzar is going to be told that you're done. Um, so to be told that you're going to be the next ruler under me, but the interpretation is that you're done, it's kind of like being told, oh, you won the lottery, but the lottery went bankrupt last week. Yay, I got, I got a winning lottery ticket that's worthless. Um, but again, I think it's more Daniel's humility. Um, but he starts off in verse 18 with his response. He says, O king. If you notice that his phrase to the king just starts off, O king. It's not, O king, live forever, which everyone else always seems to say. Maybe because Daniel knew that this was his last night. Um, o king, live for a few more hours. Uh, but what's interesting here is that his, uh, his address quickly turns from addressing Belshazzar. He, may, he talks to the king, but he's going to come to remind him of his father um, or grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, here. And I really like what Daniel does here. He has the floor. He has the king's undivided attention here. He's been brought in. He's in front of everyone. It seems like every time Daniel's brought in in front of the king, there's... Tons of people around, and all the focus is on Daniel and what he has to say. And this is another example of that. Everybody in the room, I'm sure, has all eyes on what Daniel is going to say here. Um, but because he has the king's undivided attention, he's going to take advantage of that here. King Belshazzar is going to first have to listen to what Daniel has to say to him before he gets to hear 
what he wants to hear. He wants to know what those words on the wall mean. But Daniel's going to tell him some other stuff first. And quite frankly, I think Daniel was repulsed by this entire situation. I think he would have been sickened by this scene that he's called into. I mean, he's called into this room, this great hall, where everyone's drunk, where the wine is flowing freely, and the immorality and the perversion were being openly displayed here. I mean, what kind of scene did Daniel have to walk through in order to get to the center of this room or the, or the front of this room? And then, to top it all off, not even just what was going on in the room, the entire reason that he was here why the message had been written in the first place is because these people in this party had taken the vessels that had been created to worship God and instead were using them in their immoral party to mock him. They were mocking God. And do you think Daniel was happy to be there? Do you think Daniel would have been comfortable being in that room to be there? How could a God-fearing man even walk into this company without feeling absolutely filthy? And so here he was standing before this fool of a king, and he's going to give him a piece of his mind. And it all starts with a comparison to a king who came before him. He says, The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And this is nothing new. We've seen this before in chapter 2. God gave sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave, or God made Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold, if you remember the dream in chapter 2, and made him the absolute authority over the world at this time. Now, Belshazzar wouldn't have disputed the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. But this may be the first time that he'd been told that all of the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar came from the Most High God, the very God that Belshazzar and his nobles had just been mocking. He wants Belshazzar to realize just who it is that he's actually challenging here. And he continues on in verse 19, And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. All this was true about Nebuchadnezzar. He owed all of this to God. It all came from him. In fact, all authority comes from God. Governments, leaders, kings, presidents, they all get their authority from God. Nebuchadnezzar, he elevated Daniel and his friends, he did that by himself. He did that by the authority that he had, but the authority that he had to do that came from God. God sovereignly put Daniel and his friends in power in Babylon, and he used Nebuchadnezzar to do that. And if you were here for our last study, you might remember that we looked at Jeremiah chapter 25, and we saw that Nebuchadnezzar was the servant of God. And I'm just going to read a portion of Jeremiah 25. Starting in verse 8, where it said, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the earth, declares the Lord. And I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. God's, 
God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Now, at that point in time, did Nebuchadnezzar know that he was the servant of God? Did he recognize that he was the servant of God? No. Not at first, but not before Daniel came along. Before Daniel came along, Nebuchadnezzar had no concept of God. He knew him as, as, well, it's the God of Israel, but the God whose stuff I'm taking from the temple, the God who I've bested, he thought, because he took the treasures from his temple. But he had no idea that God was the one that had put him in power. But Daniel explained that to him, or you say God explained that to him through Daniel. Um, But we saw that in chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, where it was explained that he was the head of gold, and it was explained that God is the one that gave him his authority. It came to the point later that Nebuchadnezzar forgot this important bit of information, and God had to remind him of it again. And here in chapter 5, Daniel alludes to this down in verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Verse 20, he tells him that God gave authority to Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar became proud about it, when he forgot that little tidbit, that little important piece of information, then God took the glory away from him. God deposed him as ruler, and we remember Nebuchadnezzar's seven-year vacation, right? He humbled him. The details of that are repeated in verse 21. And we remember this from our study in the last chapter. We just looked at this several weeks ago. For Belshazzar, this was over 20 years prior, the events that Daniel's talking about here. Uh, But even he would have remembered this. How could you not remember this? This happens to your king. Your king makes a decree that this happened to him. How could anybody in that kingdom forget this? Everybody knew about this. So Daniel presents it as fact, an historical record. And this was well known, especially within the royal family. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar himself had issued that royal decree. He said in the verse, verses of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote so that everyone would know why this had happened to him. It was so that he would recognize the sovereignty of God, that he, God, was the ultimate authority, and Nebuchadnezzar had been entrusted with authority from him. That was why Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled. That was why he'd been driven away from mankind. That was why he'd been living like an animal for seven years, so that he would understand his role in God's great plan. And as we saw, the message finally sunk in for Nebuchadnezzar. But now here, chapter 5, 20, over 20 years later, 30 years probably since Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, had his event, vacation, there's a new king on the throne, and there's someone else in power, right? New king. 
But you know what? The situation is exactly the same. His authority as ruler of Babylon came from the same place. Came from God. And now this king doesn't realize that, doesn't remember that. And he takes it a step further. Not only does he not remember that, not only is he taking glory to himself, but now he has decided to openly mock God. Something that, as far as we know, as far as we have recorded, not even Nebuchadnezzar had gone to that extent. So now Daniel turns to address him directly. Verse 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Here's the first indication directly that Belshazzar was aware of all this. He knew it all. And Daniel knew that he knew it all. I mean, maybe Daniel even remembered Belshazzar playing as a little boy in the king's court or eating at the, king's, at the kids' table during the great feasts or something like that. But whatever the case, Daniel knows that this is not new information for Belshazzar. And having this knowledge, Belshazzar has refused to humble his heart. It's a foolish, foolish thing to challenge God, especially for those who should know better. And Dan Belshazzar falls into that category. But the time for God's patience with Belshazzar's pride is at an end, and, and he knew what he needed to know, and yet he had refused to humble himself in light of that knowledge. Daniel continues, verse 23, But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Belshazzar has challenged God. He set himself up as more important, as greater and as mightier than God. He took the things that he knew belonged to the Most High God and used them to worship and praise his own false gods. Inanimate objects of wood and stone, silver and gold. He knew the truth and he purposefully turned away from that. That's a serious thing. That's a very serious thing for someone to know the truth and to turn away from it. When you know the truth of God, when you turn your back on it and then you openly mock God to his face. And that's what Belshazzar has done here. That's what many people do today. You know, we see examples of this today. Anytime you see, you see people throw up artwork that openly mocks God. You see, you hear about a movie or a TV show that depicts Christianity as stupid or as, as foolishness. And it never ceases to amaze me when you see a show that has someone who's a, like a comedy that has a someone that's supposed to be a, a priest or a minister, they're usually a bumbling idiot. I think of the show MASH. I'm sure some of you remember MASH. Some of you might not have any idea what MASH is, but Father Mulcahy on MASH was always like the goofiest guy in the whole thing. And I just, I liked MASH, but they presented him as kind of an idiot. But at many times they use the truth in order to present it in a bad life. They use the fact I mean, anyway, I could, go, I could go off on this. But people today mock the truth of God, and they openly mock God, and they try to make others think that believing in God is foolishness. And this is really the same thing. Belshazzar knew the truth 
about God. But here he was leading an open rebellion against God with the vessels from his temple. And God was not going to stand for it any longer. There came a point where God said, that's enough. Verse 24. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. You did this foolish thing, mocking God, and this hand was sent. So God passes judgment. So Daniel here is basically telling Belshazzar, this hand is basically a result of what you've just been doing. He sends out, God passes judgment, he sends out the hand to write down this inscription for Belshazzar. Why didn't God write it out so that Belshazzar could just read it? Why didn't the hand just come and hand Belshazzar a note that said, you're done, this year over? Because this way, Daniel could come in and let the king know in front of all thousands of his nobles that God was punishing him for his sins. This is a very, very public proclamation here. What the king meant, you know, the the king sits there and he sees this and he says, I need to find out what this means. So he sends out for people that can tell him what it is. And in what he thinks is a quest for information, God uses as a public statement for all those in attendance here. In verses 25 to 28, this shows us the inscription itself. Verse 25 says, Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, oparsen. And here are the words that were written out. Just four words that were written on the wall. One of them written down twice. And they are Aramaic words. Right? Which in Aramaic was the common language of the day. So that's like saying somebody came in here and wrote four English words on the wall. So you have to ask yourself, why couldn't the wise men read these words? Right? I mean, how wise were they if they couldn't even read the common language? Well, maybe they could read them, but that just didn't make sense. And we'll see, we'll see their definitions here in just a minute. Maybe the wise men were too drunk to read them. Maybe they were part of this party. Maybe the hand had bad handwriting, like it was written by a doctor or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, Toby. <laughs> I'm sure your handwriting is great, but... <laughs> So those might be possibilities, but I think the main thing to point out is that once again, God is at work here, right? He didn't want these words read until Daniel came in to read them. So just how he accomplished that is unclear. But Daniel comes in, and he's able to read them for the king. And starting in verse 26, we have the interpretation. This is the interpretation of the message. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Now, the first word mene literally means numbered. It's an Aramaic word that means numbered, and it's written here twice. Daniel says that the meaning is that God has numbered the kingdom and put an end to it. So, in other words... Time is up. Time is up. Says it twice. Belshazzar has run out of time. Notice that Daniel is not merely translating the meaning of these words, but he's interpreting what God meant by them. When God says numbered, he means your kingdom is at an end. Tekel means weighed or balanced. You have been judged. Weighed on the scales and found to be light or deficient. You don't measure up. 
Here, here is God's standard over here, and you're way down here, Belshazzar. You don't measure up to God's standards. Not good enough. So the time for judgment has come, and that's what's seen with the last word, Perez, divided. Now, depending on your translation, this word used in verse 28 is slightly different from what we saw in verse 25. New American Standard has the word a parson. ESV has parson. Um, slight variations on the word. But basically, the word that we see here in verse 28 is the root of the words used before, um, where the U, if in the NASB, is an and. The I-N at the end signifies plurality. So it's really the same word. What this signifies is that God is going to take the kingdom of Babylon and give it over to the Medes and the Persians. And it's going to be split in two. It's going to be divided up amongst the two kingdoms. Now hopefully that concept or that idea sounds familiar to you because we've seen this before. Back in chapter 2, the breasts of arm and silver on Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Nebuchadnezzar was told that an inferior kingdom would come after him, and that kingdom is seen right here. The Medo-Persian Empire, they were known for their use of silver. They were a divided kingdom. They were comprised of two different nations, and they never had the same type of absolute rule and authority that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed. So here is the announcement of this coming. The great kingdom of Babylon is at an end. The time is up. And this is not surprising. This is what we saw in Jeremiah 25 a few weeks ago, that Babylon would be punished for their sin. God was going to use Babylon as his servant to accomplish his will, but then they would also be punished for their sin as well. But here we see it come to pass. And the sin that brought it about on this night, or at least we have the final straw. Now, I have a little more history for you, but let's first take a look at Belshazzar. Belshazzar's response to this in verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar honors his word. He makes Daniel the third ruler of the kingdom. Third in command of a dying kingdom, right? There's that lottery ticket thing again. Um a kingdom that Daniel had just told him was over and was about to get its, its head handed to it anyway, but Belshazzar does it anyway. He fulfills his word in front of all these people and gives Daniel the, the authority. But I think all this shows is that Belshazzar just doesn't really get it. Even though Daniel has just told him what it means, he was still operating as if God had not just pronounced judgment on him and his kingdom. He just was a short-sighted, arrogant, foolish man. Now, here's a little more history I have for you, why Belshazzar's actions were so foolish. Do you know what was happening on this very night outside of the city walls? The Medes and the Persians, who had been camped around for four months or so, had figured out a way to get inside the impenetrable fortress of Babylon. They were diverting the water of the river Euphrates. They were damming it up outside, and they were making their way through the riverbed under the walls of the city of Babylon. And those inside the city were too preoccupied with what was going on, many of them probably too drunk to know what was going on. 
And this day is actually marked in history using a current calendar. Some put it at October 11th of 539 B.C. So some of the Medo-Persian soldiers made their way under the walls. They managed to get inside and open the, the gates for the rest of the army to come into the city of Babylon. And that was it. The impenetrable fortress that was Babylon was overrun, and they were able to come in and take over. And everybody inside was so comfortable thinking that their fortress was impenetrable that there was little to no resistance. And Daniel only records this for us in verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. That's all we get from Daniel as far as the the facts go of that. In verse 31, it says, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So here's the transition, a very little fanfare. Belshazzar then is killed that same night. Darius the Mede takes over at the age of 62, and Babylon and Belshazzar are done. They're gone. And we just get an introduction to Darius the Mede here, and we'll have more to say about him in our next study, and we'll see him again um, in chapter 6. So Babylon is gone. Babylon's no more. Now we're at the second stage of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And just like that, God's will is done. The Medo-Persian Empire has been besieging Babylon for months. God had sovereignly put them in place so that on this night, when the king of Babylon would dare to challenge God, they would be ready to do their part and strike him down. If you think about it, you think the the engineer of the Medo-Persian Empire that all of a sudden has a thought, hey, maybe we should dam up the water and be able to get inside. God at work in that guy's life. It's truly amazing to see just how flawlessly God's will is worked out in the world and how certainly judgment is meted out. Um, okay, we're at the end of our time. I had a couple of points, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just end there for today. So that's the end of chapter 5. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We give you thanks once again for our study in Daniel. We thank you for the time that we have uh, together uh, just pray, Lord, that you would help us to use the truths. We thank you, Lord, for just these situations that have occurred in the past. We thank you for the examples of men like Daniel, uh, just the faithfulness that he had throughout his life and the way that you used him in a mighty way. We pray, Lord, that we would be your instruments to, uh, Lord, just present your gospel, to be um, keeping ourselves uh, apart from, from the world, Lord, in everything that we do. We pray, Lord, that, that our example would shine Um, in front of those around us. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, just honor you with everything that we do each and every day of our lives. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us the rest of today. Uh, Pray that you'd be with us in the next hour as as we worship you, Lord, as we hear your word once again. We pray that we would be open to the truth of your word and pray, Lord, that you would help us to just use that in our lives as well to uh, bring honor to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.